What is up, y'all? Welcome back to the Running and Gunning Podcast with your host, Justin Sinan. Unfortunately, our good friend Logan Sandburn is not here tonight. Um, we uh, He had to work late, and unfortunately, the podcast that you're getting ready to listen to, we have already recorded. And uh, for the listener's sake, and for all you guys checking it out, and for out of respect for our awesome guest we have tonight, I felt it was only uh, it was the best choice to just try to record this one again and uh, bring it to you guys with a little cleaner audio. So I want to give a huge thanks to our guest, Tim Price. Um, he is a, an ex-forester from Pennsylvania. This guy's got a ton of knowledge uh, that you guys are going to love. Um, I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're going to get in a little bit deeper on some of the things that we touched on last time. So I think really, if you look at everything in a, as a whole, it's going to go awesome. So Without further ado, Tim, how are you doing, man? What's good? Hey, what's up, Justin? Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for the invite. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Thanks for round two, man. I'm so sorry yeah. that uh, we weren't able to do that first one, man. I felt terrible. Um, but like I said, I just uh, out of respect for you, man. I think that this one has a ton to offer. So I wanted to wanted to make sure it was good and people can tune in because this one's I'm guessing probably going to be about an hour. Um, so awesome. we're, we're going to get into some good stuff. So. Why don't you do a little intro? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, I I first learned about Tim from our good friend Travis Malochik and the uh, Antler Anthracite Addicts. Um, Tim, you're a member of them, and uh, yes, sir. Yep. I was just told. Uh, I was told that this guy is is taught Travis a ton. Um, he's got an awesome knowledge base for uh, big woods, for ag, and uh, and forestry, and. Personally, I don't have that much knowledge in, uh, you know, forestry and as a whole. So, I think it'd be great to have you on. And um, sorry to, for that long introduction, but why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, man? Oh, I, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, like Justin said, my name is Tim Price uh, from Central Pennsylvania, right around the Bloomsburg area. Uh, joined Travis with this crazy anthracite antler addicts idea and. Uh, I guess the way the way we talk about it today, what Trav would love me to say is kind of a slogan that I've been saying. And he came up to me one day and says, hey, I'm going to start this anthracite antler addicts because all I want to do for the rest of my life is hunt. And you know forestry, and I need that. What do you say? Do you want to join this staff? I'm just like, meh, sounds gay. Let's do it. <laughs> um, and if anybody knows us, that is definitely a joke that, that gets overplayed and... Uh, we're just basically a bunch of really fun-loving guys. I happen to have 15 years of forestry experience working for the state of Pennsylvania. Um, I work in every single one of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania. So working in these woodlots, I've seen everything from urban, suburban, uh, north-central part of Pennsylvania when you start getting into that big woods. And, and that's kind of where I really started to feel home was in the big woods. And uh, my father-in-law back in 2012... Uh, I ended up asking his permission to marry his daughter, so he told me he was going to pay my way up to Maine for the first time on a whitetail hunt, and it was life-changing. Uh, for the first time ever, I really felt my forestry knowledge and my hunting knowledge all come together. And uh, fast forward 10 years later, I started getting Trav going up there, and he's just like, man, this is a different game up here. So uh, the way I kind of say it is, in, in Pennsylvania, if you're if you're good enough to shoot a buck more years than not in Pennsylvania, you're probably good enough to see one in Maine. Uh, it's definitely a completely different game. So that's 
where the forester kind of took me into that big woods aspect was uh, getting down and tracking deer and finding out what the deer are doing and uh, just divine intervention. Trav walks into my life at the same time and he's, if you guys know him, he's this scrape master. It's, he's out there with 14 different types of scents, doctoring up these scrapes and he has probably triple digit numbers of trail cameras. And we really play yin and yang off of each other because I have zero trail cameras. Um, okay. I hunt natural scrapes. I never really doctored them up myself. So Travis is teaching me these nuances of scrapes and I'm teaching yeah. him more broad overview forestry. And that's kind of where we led to here with the forestry talk. So uh, yeah. I do consider myself much more of a forester than a hunter. But at the same time, I hunt every single second I can. And I was fortunate enough to put some some nice bucks on the ground. So That's awesome, man. Yeah. And uh, that episode we did with Travis for, uh, I think it was year-round approach to running scrapes. It's one of our most popular ones that we've produced. So um, uh, hats off to I Travis all- for that. I see the pictures he won't show everybody else, and <laughs> if I if I, I think wear you two and hats, I, are, I would take them both off. Oh yeah, yeah I'm sure you, you see them too. You and I are both are both fortunate to uh, be in that inner circle. I think, but and, yeah. One more thing, I will add to the introduction. Uh, since you're affiliated with the Lone Wolf guys and Lone Wolf Custom Gear, um, if anybody was at the the Benton show last year for the Mobile Hunters Road Show, I was the fat dude who ate shit during the relay race trying to win it for my team. <laughs> Uh, oh man! Full, reco- full, full recovery. Good uh, to hear. Bruised ego, oh. bruised ego. But I came back. For, I'm, I'm coming back forty pounds lighter this year, looking for everybody. So I've you all look out. Forty pounds this me, year. So. I know it's moved. I can't think of what uh, where it is offhand right now, but it's down um, near Chester somewhere in Pennsylvania. Okay. It's yeah. down the outskirts of Philly. I got you. Yeah, that uh, that'll be a good one man i've always heard that pa is a, it turns out really good every year there's a lot of you guys that love what do you uh what are you running or do you uh run a custom gear stand or i do i run a, a 0.75 okay uh I, last year was the first year i had it and once again i mean you can thank travis and our buddy luke another triple a uh, anthracite antler addicts guy for talking me into getting into a mobile setup because my mobile setup was uh either a stump in a, in a nice little ground blind, or I would log my, my API Grand Slam Supreme or my Summit Viper. He's 25-pound stands. I would just walk him in three or four miles. I mean, right. when you're built, built like a pack mule, like that, that's, <laughs> but the, these stands are absolutely amazing. I think my entire rig is somewhere about 14 and a half, 15 pounds. Uh, it's a yeah. hybrid saddle system. Uh, okay. It, 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 I absolutely love it. I feel so comfortable in it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I love the seven five. I did a little bit of hybrid hunting out of that last year too, and um, yeah, I just love it because it's like, man, if you want to sit, you can sit, and it's got all the foot room you need. Yeah, but uh, but enough about that, man. I got some good questions to ask you, so let's get into this. Yes, so sir. one of my one of my first things I wanted to get into was, uh, you know, over your years of forestry, um, what have you noticed like with uh, impacts on like forest cutting? And, like, when deer tend to return to uh, these, like, forestry cuts, like, major timber cuts, and maybe you can touch on that a little bit, maybe educate some people. Well, uh, I am a firm believer that the deer never leave the area. They will be out of sight, out of mind, but they're definitely within earshot of the saws. Now, once again, I'm going to kind of gear this towards big woods. In Maine, if you hear a saw in the distance... You could be no doubt that's the only time you're going to run into another hunter in the North Woods in Maine because 
the deer are in there while they're cutting. Um, because up there, it's it's their life or death. I mean, they have to get that slash, those that woody debris that comes down to the ground and the, the buds and that those carbohydrates and those winters, that's all they have up there. So here in the mid-Atlantic, Pennsylvania, even a little bit farther south, those deer still need those carbohydrates regardless of, of where you're at, you know. Uh, North Central PA deer, they've never, they don't know what corn looks like. Right. Um, so, even these deer that do know what corn looks like, these agriculture deer, they still need those carbs, especially in those winter months. So, uh, the deer never really leave the area. So, okay. our area around here, especially on state government property, a lot of times with the state forest, so in Pennsylvania, our Department of Conservation and Natural Resources is different than State Game Commission responsible for hunting. Um, the forestry side, they care about the timber, the future of the merchantable timber. So what they do is an eight-foot woven wire deer fence for a few years, and obviously it works really well. Yeah, I <laughs> imagine the deer, so. If the, deer can, yeah, if the deer get in the fence, they don't ever leave. Okay. Um, but they very seldom get through. Where the Game Commission don't use as much of the the deer fence because they're more habitat management. So have, have you ever used those deer fences, uh, to your advantage to like, kind of like skirt deer or like cut them oh, off? Or, oh yeah. I was yeah, going to say, absolutely. absolutely. I'm sure the, the hard Pretty part good in Pennsylvania, the hard part is in Pennsylvania is it's legal to drive deer with a rifle. So it's really important to use these deer, uh, fences as a funnel with the bow. Okay. Um, getting out, getting out there early archery season, these deer fences definitely do create natural funnels, it's almost like a transition forms in the middle of an oak hickory forest. You don't need all okay. the other things that the other tree species to make a transition. It's just the natural, like we can't go this way. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest, man. Uh, here in Kentucky, it might be, it's probably not any different, but I've noticed when they do these select cuts here that we have just, it's almost like they just don't care. And there's so much, cross hatching of big trees maybe the ones that they don't have much value to maybe they're rotten um but for whatever reason it is but i've just kind of feel like it's it could be really beneficial or it's like really impactful on these deer um when you get into like a timber cut like that i mean and they have that many different trees it's like a big mess do you still feel like mature deer just like they flock to that or do they kind of like stay on the outskirts of that? Well, when it comes time for the the time of year when all the archers are licking their lips, you know, this pre-rut is happening. These bucks are starting. The bachelor groups are breaking up. The does are starting to find these areas of slash. That's what. Uh, so if it's not a log, if they sell uh, logs in twelve foot sections and it's a forty eight foot tall tree. There's still going to be those fine branches and everything on the top. And most of the logging operations just leave them lay. It's called slash. Okay. That's amazing bedding because the deer can bed and eat at the same time. And when okay. those bachelor groups break up, those bucks are going to follow those doe in there. Um, in the velvet, we all know those bucks, they might choose to skirt the outsides of it. I mean, they'll still go in where they can, but they're super protective of their antlers that time of year. Yeah. But that's not time of year where we're typically hunting. So yeah, yeah, if you want to focus in on hunting season, those those bones are getting harder on top of their head. The the brain is more on the does than uh, protecting the antlers, and and they, those bucks definitely get in there. And when they get yeah. in there, they're really hard to get out. Yeah, that's kind of what I was feeling. Uh, it so we we have a lot of that, and then in certain areas, 
I'll have an overabundance of saplings, like from where they've done some of these select cuts and they've actually removed a lot of the trees. And it's like damn near impossible to hunt some of this. Like if you're on the ground, I feel like you could, but I've bumped a lot of bucks in areas like that. And it's like, I feel like it's almost better to just hunt the little exterior fringes where they like come out of those kind of areas. I mean, is that, am I, yeah. Or am I right? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a deer definitely cares about food until the bucks go under rut. Um, but it's not the only thing they're concerned about. They realize that they're bottom of the food chain out there. And yeah. in Pennsylvania, I'm sure in Kentucky, there's no shortage of coyotes out there that are waiting to no, no. take down any deer they possibly can. Um, so the deer have to get up and move. That lactic acid gets built up in their joints. They have to be ready to spring into action at any point in time. And if they bed down for... 8, 10, 12 hours at a time, they would never, they would have too much lactic acid in their joints that they can't just spring up. Uh, so I they're still, and that's kind of what I always say when people say, oh, that buck went nocturnal. Well, the buck went nocturnal to your camera. Yeah. The deer don't have a home to go to. You have right. to find where this buck is in the daylight. And to do that, you have to know, you know, your, why this buck is bedding there. Where's his food? Where's his water? Um, so... You you could definitely get these bucks moving still, right? Does that go in like hand in hand with burns, like how we're just a broad spectrum um, when we're talking about that kind of stuff? I mean, do you feel like those burn areas are maybe something you should focus on? You know, that year or like maybe the following year? What have you come to find? Uh, pers- personal preference, really. Um, burns are. I'll go on on the board and say burns are the best thing that could happen for whitetail management in a a forestry aspect because what happens the way a forester utilizes these burns um and this is kind of a i'd like everybody who's against forest fires to pay attention a little bit extra not that i'm trying to be confrontational but this this is definitely uh aimed at you a little bit in a very respectful way uh these oaks have a tap root that goes really deep really fast the other species like birch maple the ones that don't really give off that hard mass crop yeah these bucks and does they'll still munch on it just for the the buds and the the carbohydrates and the woody uh intake but the bread and butter is this oak mast and this hickory mast and these desirable trees and what they do is they have these tap roots that go way down and that's why it's really hard to outcompete these oak trees so when these oak saplings start coming up and they get to you know, three, four feet and they get established, they have a three or four foot tap root underground, but none of the other tree species around has it. So you light a match or a drip torch with diesel fuel in a right. very controlled setting. It burns everything except for those tap roots. So the oak flourish back with no competition of the birch and the maple, which is uh, producing way more hard mast in the decades to come. And that's decades, multiple decades. Okay. So... How can you um, find out about, like, if you're now, like, all right, hang on, let me ask this right. Doing forestry on public land, did you guys do many burns? And is there a way that people can find out where you did the burns without putting boots on the ground? Um, yeah, you could. Th- there's definitely um, Onyx maps. I've definitely seen some of the, the, the burn maps pop up on there. Um, sometimes okay. just calling your local forestry office in, in Pennsylvania, we have 20 different forestry offices, uh, and every single one of them utilize forest fire 
including oh, cool. uh, sister agencies like the Game Commission. Util- uh, every single uh, forestry outfit in Pennsylvania utilizes forest fires heavy. Okay. Very heavy. And you guys are welcome uh, welcome hunters to you know call and ask questions. Like You guys are there to help people. Oh sure, yeah. You, you right. don't. Really I'm sure not every every one of them, but you know. Right, right. The the, the 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 staff, especially the people who answer the phones, are typically super friendly, very helpful. So, cool. Yeah, That's they're awesome. they're used to those type of questions. Yeah. So this one's from Logan. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions as if Logan was here doing the podcast with us. Sure. Um, sure. Logan asks, like, so when he's walking through the woods, let's say it's like early season and into October, right? Like what should he be really looking for as he's walking through the woods? Like as far as like trees go, like what do you try to focus on where like more mature deer, uh, tend to tend to frequent? Like, is there a given area that that you're absolutely, um, a given area is different everywhere though. Um, as I said, I worked in all 67 of Pennsylvania's counties. What I'll harm in on is the oak oak hickory forest type, which is uh, mostly what we hunt in the north central. Um, what I'm looking for there is definitely a food source. It could be a beech shelf. It could be a white oak flat. Um, the red oaks could be producing that year. Um, but I want that food source to be somewhat close to a transition area. And what I mean by transition areas is a hardwood to softwood thermal cover. Um, maybe some, some mountain laurel mixed in with that oak hickory where the mountain laurel gets so thick that you know, the trees are more sporadic. Killer bedding area, really close to food sources. Um, definitely water as well. Uh, water is definitely overlooked. I know that the question was really specific for like that September, October, you're coming in on the season. So mm-hmm. I'll, leave it, I'll leave it with that. But hard mast is definitely something that's hard to compete with. Okay. Um, but if you come across an area that has an abundance of hard mass to trying to find where those bucks are bedding and where they're going to have their attack of their food from, you know, these bucks, they J hook everything. You got to right. think about, you are a predator to them. So oh, yeah. they want to, they, they want to know what's on that shelf before they get to that shelf. So maybe if you're hunting a transition close to the food instead of on the food you might you might get a shot of that buck definitely that's where the hunter aspect comes in where you yeah. have to play the wind i agree you know know, know your ranges some people are comfortable taking a shot out to 45 yards with a bow for me i like my stuff in closer than 25 right so i agree i mean you know i've gotten in this situation here a few times um where i walk in uh let's say i'm hunting a new piece man and it looked great on the map. I'm first putting boots on the ground and I have my setup. I'm ready to hunt. And it's like walking on marbles. Um, oh, yeah. There's so much mass there. See, we have a ton of oak, ton of white oak, red oak, and persimmons. So it's like an all you can oh, yeah. eat buffet on some of these ridge tops. Like when you get in situations like that, I mean, what is, what's the best thing to do? Cause I mean, you've obviously found the food, but it's freaking everywhere. I mean, is like, yeah. Is that where it but just I, comes down to just cover ground and, and kick them up? Or? Yeah, for, for me personally in that, especially if you have a high area of persimmon, the persimmon fruit's not going to last nearly as long as those acorns. So okay. if, there's, if there's still some persimmon fruit left around, maybe try to hunt 
closer to the persimmon because that has a, a shelf life on the ground of a few days or until one bear comes by and cleans up the whole freaking tree. We're kind of lucky um, right here where we're at. We don't have to worry about the bears, but oh yeah, I mean, yeah, in what Pennsylvania, you... we just about all have to worry about the bears. Oh, no, bears yeah, so. I know it. I know it. On the persimmons, what do you really like to look for on a persimmon when you see one? Like I'm honestly orange, not as familiar. Like kinda, yeah. Okay. The the persimmon trees so I've many. seen them, but most of them are yard trees up here. Um, okay. They're, they're not really out in the landscape all that much. Even the the closest thing we would have up here, and we still don't have any too many of them, are pawpaws. Yeah. Um, like I said, in the wild, I mean, through 15 years of forestry, I might have seen two of them in the wild. A pawpaw so, tree. Uh, yeah, but the persimmons, from my understanding, it's it's when the fruit is just underripe or ripe is when they're going to start taste testing it and once yeah. they get the once they get the taste for that i mean persimmon is probably one of a deer's favorite things in the world oh but absolutely it doesn't last man. long so no i mean we had one just like not to go down a rabbit hole but we had one right off our driveway man and we had a buck last year uh-huh. i mean like every freaking day dude he yeah. got so he got so uh you know like brazen he would come out here and and tear the whole branch off the tree and oh, just wow. eat it like he just he tore it up and then yeah. you know it made sense i'm like i wondered why like you always see so many persimmon trees that are like straight up like they got mostly trunk and then they branch out that's why because deer are pruning them all up before they uh oh yeah before they get to grow big because this one's not very big at all it's probably i don't know like the size of a baseball bat handle pretty much yeah. So for for some reason those persimmons the yard trees that I know of it doesn't matter where they are there's deer activity by them and they will choose them over acorns and chestnuts but they're still eating the acorns and the chestnuts I yeah. mean it's really hard to go wrong are the chestnuts as, like uh, a seasons. magic tree for you guys in Pennsylvania I mean I always you know yeah. I don't get to see many of them but I always hear like they are like the golden ticket well chestnuts are and uh, we're doing a lot of research now as a society with the uh, American Chestnut Foundation and everything with trying to find disease-resistant trees for the chestnut blight. Uh, If you think back in the, well, I would probably say the 1800s, our ridgetops in this state were covered in American chestnut. And then the American chestnut blight comes through and that's a disease wiped out all the chestnuts and that's why we're left with all these oak. And that's also where your invasive gypsy moths come from and that's what our deer are used to now is these... uh, invasive species coming in and these oak trees when they used to be chestnut trees but yeah if you can find a chestnut tree or you plant some of these disease resistant chestnut trees that they're definitely going to bring in some game but you're also going to have to be active during squirrel season too okay everybody needs to be more active during squirrel season yeah yeah i'm i actually (laughs) was fortunate enough to find a uh a little farm here locally that has them I think they're like $20 a tree, so I don't know. I'm planning on buying like maybe five or six of them and trying to plant them here. We have a little small property. It's like 20, yeah. 25 acres, so whatever hey, I can do. Don't eat them, they're, it's a big, yeah, if the deer don't eat them, they're good for human consumption too. So Yeah, it's like a little science project in my backyard. I try to try uh, to get big deer to come in, but... Yeah, I have no matter. less than 100 different science projects in my yard. You don't have to worry yeah. about that. <laughs> So I had a, a solid question. I think um, a lot of people like is, you know, for a forest, like what makes a forest healthy? Like what what should we be looking for if we walk in the woods and we're like, man, like, you know, this is what 
a good set of woods is supposed to look like. And, you know, maybe that's where we should be focusing versus if you walk in and it's yeah. kind of like a, a shitty chunk of woods. Maybe this, maybe set like two examples of like what makes bad woods, what makes good woods. This is a great question. An absolute great question. And I know your listeners can't hear my my smile on my face while you were asking it, but I was really hoping <laughs> you would ask this question. Cool. Um, when, when somebody thinks of this picturesque forest, this is the, the bad first. I'll always give bad news first. Um, when somebody thinks of a picturesque forest, they think of this nice old growth forest where there's these... 25 30 inch trees maybe some people think of the redwoods in california we don't have that in pennsylvania we have oaks that sometimes have a hard time growing out from on top of a rock and then we have these beautiful fertile valleys and and hillsides of oak so it all depends on the management so if you think about what i would describe as this this forest that has these huge trees with just ferns underneath a forester or any hunter should look at that and say, that's stagnant. There's nothing in there. Um, nine out of ten times you might see a passing deer through there, but they're not there for any reason. They're moving through there. Um, one of my idols, Hal Blood, uh, master guide up in Maine, he said, when you're hunting to try to hunt where the, the 10% of the area where the deer spend 90% of their time, those forests with ferns, old growth, there's nothing there for the deer. That's the other 90%. Don't hunt that. What you're looking for, what I'm looking for, species composition. So don't be just happy when you walk into a place and see oaks, even if they're producing great mast. That's really good. That's The deer definitely coming in there. Uh, bear definitely coming in there. But... Think about the other thing, and uh, a little story here. Trav walked me into one of his spots about a mile and a half, two miles in, and I said, this is great. And he set up a camera, and he has a lot of activity on the camera, but at the end of the day, we were whooped. This was the second place he walked us into, and if anybody knows Trav, it's miles. You're miles and miles and miles. And uh, I said, I just want to walk over here like another couple hundred yards because here I'm seeing hemlock and red maple and and some chestnut oak, but over there I'm seeing white oak and tulip poplar, but I'm still seeing everything that we have over here. And I notice there's a little hole or depression in the, in the topography there. And well, that's a water source. If, uh, if you know anything about geology, these depressions in the, the sides of the hill, typically that's where your water table is, table is a little higher and it's just bringing more, uh, more interest to the deer's diet. They know where these shelves are with these acorns. So that's they're like, going to get there. So the water is a, a real important thing to have yeah. in your diversity. If you can find and, like a yes. secluded piece of woods with water and mass crop and some cover, then that's really like ideally yes. what you want. Absolutely. Uh, right. Cause tr tree species and this species composition I'm talking about, it, it's water dependent hemlocks in Pennsylvania deer love these signpost rubs on hemlocks for okay. some reason it might hold their forehead gland scent better or something like that but hemlocks are a riparian species which means they like a higher water table you'll still find them on a ridge top but they're not going to look good but okay. you'll find them lining a class a trout stream you'll find Beautiful water, beautiful hemlocks. So, so sometimes like a hemlock might be a really good way for a guy to pick out like, hey, there's water around absolutely. here, even though you might not visually see it. And like, 
I think on the last the last time we recorded, what, what did you call those? Those little um, the spring seeps. Seeps. That's what they were. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that all was like that. That was really solid. I think I've and I've never heard that before, and it makes a yeah. lot of sense to me. It really hit me. Well, in in Pennsylvania, just being a forester, I mean, I spent thousands and thousands of hours in the woods, and I've always noticed that there was just something to that. But then it was all put together for me when Travis and I went up to uh, to Hal Blood's tracking clinic up in Maine um, at the very start of COVID. In fact, COVID came around in like February or March, and we were in Maine in May somehow. <laughs> but uh, uh, he, he said, "Stay, pay attention to these spring seeps, and then there's a reason why. It's because the species composition. Up there, uh, they're looking at brown ash, what we call black ash in Pennsylvania, um, yeah. and they're looking at that as their hemlock. So it grows in those spring seeps, and the bucks really love to do these signpost rubs or legacy rubs where multiple bucks are coming. Um so the definition of a signpost rub, according to Hal, is where multiple big bucks are coming together, and it's the middle or the edge of all of their ranges coming together, so they're all hitting that same signpost rub. And that's the difference between a signpost rub and a regular rub. These signpost rubs tend to be, in our area, on hemlock or occasionally a white oak, and in northern Maine, it's it's brown ash or bust up there. Um, maybe a mountain ash, you'll, you'll find them on, but very seldom. Okay. And that's all due to water. The trees are growing there because they have more access to water. So Gotcha. Gotcha. That's awesome, man. I mean, and obviously, like, if we're rut hunting, we're going to want to focus on more funnel areas and stuff like that. But I really wanted to dive into this <clears throat> and get deeper for, like, these times, you know, around, like, September. I know you guys don't open in September, but for us, you know, we open up when the forest is long before it's starting to produce that mass crop. And it's like, right. if you were in like some wood scenarios like that, I mean, I feel like everybody harps on white oaks. I mean, can you maybe, um, maybe help, uh, is there any good like apps or anything you would maybe recommend to some of these guys to, to help, you know, distinguish what trees are what, and like what maybe they really should be looking for in early season? Uh, when it comes to apps, I don't have too many apps because uh, I have college-educated courses on it. Right. Um, but right. one one word I'll tell people to look up is dendrology. So if you want to break down the word dendrology, the suffix ology is the study of. So it's like biology is the study of life. Okay. Uh, dendrology is the study of, of trees and their taxonomy. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll break it down and teach you um, what's the difference between an oak and a maple. Uh, right. it'll also tell you what's the difference between a red oak and a white oak. It might not break it down to like protein and stuff like that, but, uh, it, it will give you a good solid reference on what you're talking about because as a hunting community, we learn off of each other. Um, and that's kind of what Trav and I harp on is he's learning forestry off of me and I'm learning s- scrapes off him. So if you know what a white oak looks like, it's easier to listen to a forester talk about a white oak and know what he's talking about. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I would say pick up a dendrology book. Okay. Um, if you're looking to get into spring scouting, pick up a book on herbaceous layer, which is all the green non-woody stems. Yeah. Because that's what's feeding your deer when it's not the season. Okay. So, so that's kind of a... You had touched a little bit on it um, earlier with, you know, ferns and stuff like that. Do you try to... Do you tend to stay away from those areas where there's a lot of ferns? Um, yeah, I... If I see too many ferns, I, I abandon ship. 
Okay. Uh, Is that almost like too much stagnant water or what? It's not even too much stagnant water. It's either by natural purposes or by man-made purposes that, that the stand was not managed or it was managed incorrectly. Okay. Um, I think our DCNR and our game commission in Pennsylvania takes a lot of flack that's not really warranted. And don't forget, this is a former DCNR employee. <laughs> right, right. Uh, You're going to get any saying, better I, knowledge. I, yeah. Right. I, I think that it's, it's the best they possibly can dealing with what they're dealing with with invasive insects and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I like to hunt managed land. Okay. And any, any forester out there, any forester worth their salt out there will tell you that... Uh, the the trees are seriously just a, an oversized crop, and we'll manage that the same way farmers will manage soybean fields or or cornfields. Except our rotation is a hundred years, and yeah. their rotation is a few months. So I got you. But is there any way like crops? Is there any way that maybe some of our private land guys um, could improve their, you know, their trees? Like if we've got. What would you try to like tend to tell me? Like, you know, I've got a small parcel, um, you know, and I, I have like kind of a mixture of woods. Like there's some good solid white oaks. There's a few red oaks, um, but there's a lot of trash trees. And, and last year I decided to do some hinge cuts and plant more food plots in the woods. Um, I mean, is there a way I can improve my timber? Like do we... You know, I've I've heard of tree spikes. Is that like a, a valid thing, or as yeah. far as you know, feeding? Do you would you recommend somebody to feed like some of these better oak trees so they produce more? Or is there, is that like BS? I don't think it's necessarily BS, but I think that a properly managed forest takes care of itself. Okay. Um, I I would say that sometimes if you're trying to establish something and your soil's a little bit off. You might be able to add some acidifier or some lime, uh, broadcast style because it's easier to do. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to hit it up with some uh, 1010 fertilizer, as long as you're using it right per acre, that's a 101010 calcium, potassium, uh, what is it? Yeah, calcium, oh, yeah. manganese, and potash. That's what it is. Okay. That's a 101010 fertilizer. Uh, every lawn and garden area will have it. And if you spread that by the acre, it could help. But really what's feeding the woods are the animals that are in there uh, eating, defecating, the, the leaves falling every fall. The, you know, the, the, nature will take care of itself. But if you're in an area that was high graded, somebody came through before your time of owning it and cut down all the beautiful trees and uh, left all the scrap for you. You might have to do some release cuts, some burns. You know, you got your work cut out for you. But uh, those burns, that that natural tree falling, all that uh, that fuel sitting on the ground, the best way to recycle that back into the ground is with a a, a fire the right way. But I mean, I don't want everybody going out and setting their woods on fire. But now, uh, I wish you lived closer because I would have you come help me do a burn here. Honestly, oh, absolutely. I yeah, mean, it, how it's, how does that work? Like, if I wanted to get that done, do I talk to a forestry guy like in my area? Yeah, you could talk to a forestry guy. Every one of uh, the twenty districts in Pennsylvania has a fire forester who works in the district. Okay. Um, they're probably not going to be too much of a help. They might give you some information, but they're not going to come out and be hands on. 
Yeah. But sometimes local fire companies will come out to be hands-on because they always have people to train. Okay. Um, you might have to su- supply your friends with the labor to actually draw the line to keep the fire where it's supposed to be. Right. But there are ways that a lot of the times your local volunteer fire companies would love to come out and do some some brush burning exercises. If nothing else, you tell your local forestry office and your local volunteer fire department, because if shit gets out of hand, you need yeah. somebody to come put out the fire. Because if yeah. you lit the fire, you are responsible for everything it burns, whether it's on your property or not. Right. So, like I said, don't be willy-nilly with fire, but there is a right time and a right scenario for fire. And... It's more often than not. Yeah. Especially in these oak hickory forests where oak was not our dominant species uh, when these ne- when these mountains were native. You know? Okay. Th- this is because of a disease that oak is our main tree in Pennsylvania now. So I gotcha. Why don't you break down um, for, uh, for some of our, our guys, like when you're taking maybe like Travis or you're taking somebody through the woods... Like, how do you, how do you educate people? Like, what are you doing when you're walking in? I mean, are you breaking down what trees or what, or are you more or less like, Hey, I'll tell you what, this seems like a really good spot. Like, have you, have you found these places from like finding sheds or finding dead bucks? I mean, you know, you're in the woods a lot more than a majority of any of us. So anybody who knows me will tell you that I am the most horrible shed hunter in existence um, because my eyes drift up in the forest where shed hunters' eyes drift down. I'm looking at treetops and everybody else is looking at the ground. So I am I've, I'm sure I walked right past some absolute monstrosities with the places I walked, but my, my eyes were someplace else. Just um, looking up. I got what, you. What, what I say is broad scheme of things, chestnut oak, is going to grow on your dry sites. It's also called rock oak because it will literally grow out of a crevice of a rock. Um, your red oak, they like a little bit more deep, well-drained soils. Um, bridge tops, side hills, but deep, well-drained soils where your white oaks really like those uh, those draws coming off the side of a mountain. What I mean by a draw is these spring seeps where the the topography, if you look at the contour line, it kind of has a slight V up up elevation so the the v's will point up okay basically i'm saying if it's just a really shallow depression of v's going up there that's a spot where i'm hitting if it's an oak hickory forest because there's some there's some stuff in there that i want to see is there hemlock is there white oak um the reason why i'm looking for white oak is because it's definitely a prize when when they find it um in actuality if it was a perfect scenario, a red oak can produce acorns every year where a white oak is every other. But out on the landscape where Mother Nature gives you droughts and floods, um, it's more like red oak will produce every two to three years and white oak is every four to six. But when you do get a mast, like you said, it's one of those ice skating rink ankle breakers. Yeah. Um, so to know where these species like to, these tree species like to hang out on your ridges is very important, especially when you're starting off that, uh, my wife hates this term, I, 35,000 foot overview. You're breaking down this giant quarter quad map and you're trying to find one ridge to hunt on. Right. It, look for, look for those, uh, those spring seeps and know the, know the species that you're looking at when you get out there. Because yeah. one great thing about being mobile, if you're walking across that ridge top and you thought on a map that this should be like, 
red oak, white oak in here, and I'm seeing nothing that I like. Being mobile, you don't even have to stop there. You, no. you could just set up at 9 o'clock in the morning two miles up the ridge on a beach flat and shoot a slammer. Right. So the, the mobile setup and, and the forestry knowledge coming together... That, that's Killer combo is kind of scary. So, oh, absolutely, dude! Like it's, I'm, I imagine you can knock them down. Do you, uh, like now? I mean, you didn't really get into it, I guess. But um, now that you're, you know, a realtor, are you looking forward to the fall more or what? I mean, are you going to have more time to dedicate to hunting? Yeah, right now I have a five-year-old and nine-year-old daughter. So anybody who has any form of kids, anybody in their mid to late thirties out there. I'm I'm feeling the struggle with you, you yeah. know, doing everything I possibly can. Kids always come first, uh, absolutely. But yeah, I've definitely uh, passed up some perfect days where I'm watching. Oh, that, that barometric pressure's dropping, and the wind's coming in, and oh, we got to go to a dance class. So it happens, um, right? But yeah, I think I'm definitely going to have a little bit more time here, not having uh, to punch a nine to five clock every day. It's, yeah. Uh, Maybe a couple few hour sits. Absolutely, man. I feel like that's one thing that you know a lot of guys uh, kind of take for granted is how much time we actually put in the woods. You know, versus you know some of these some of these guys. I feel like just look at uh, somebody's video, a YouTube video, or somebody's season, and like they're like, oh, well, that guy just went out and like smoked a giant like right there. It's like. Mm-hmm. No, it's like a it's a long process, you know. It's constantly every once in a while we get lucky, you know. But yeah, generally I feel like it's kind of a long process, and you're that's part of just being mobile and stuff. But another question I had from Logan was, could you poss- could you break down if you were looking at a big woods piece that you had not stepped foot on on Onyx, and you're looking at an aerial? Break down your process to explain to guys where you would set up like maybe where you would start looking or you know mark a pin like hey i'm gonna check that area because it looks fire right um definitely check your prevailing winds in that direction uh for pennsylvania if i'm scouting weeks in advance our prevailing winds just about statewide are out of the northwest so that's gonna be how i start that that breaking down that that scouting i'd like to be on uh the leeward side of a ridge, you know, trying to set up if it's a morning or evening spot, play those thermals. Um, like I said, you can't, for, it, it, no matter how much you know about deer hunting, you can't forget that these deer live in the forest. And no matter how much you know about forestry, you can't forget that you're still hunting deer. So to answer that question, layman is deer have the capabilities of moving and they do move. Um, I do not believe in the term nocturnal buck. But those bucks are somewhere in the daytime. Where I like to think they are, um, I like to look for topography lines that are stacked right up on top of each other, almost like a sheer cliff. And if you look around those and you find these little draws, as I said, these spring seeps where those contour lines are kind of making those just nice little slight Vs, almost if it looks like a, a kid drawing a bird in the back of a painting. If, if you think how kids just draw Vs. Yeah. That's what these contour lines look like. And if you could find a shelf where these contour lines spread out a little bit onto like a bench right next to these cliffs and throw a depression in there. So maybe like this, 
uh, little shelf is just off the, the cliff and to the just to the east of it, there's that little spring seep depression. More often than not, when you get to that bench, there's going to be a nice big old kidney bean-shaped bed there. Okay. And it's going to be with its back facing that cliff, and it's going to be looking down off the side. Those bucks are nearly impossible because they're the monarchs, man. Those are the ones we're after. Absolutely. So you gotta be you gotta find out when that buck is getting to that bed or when he's leaving that bed because your nocturnal buck is hitting that, that shelf in broad yep. daylight and he owns it. Absolutely. I so. found one last year, man, literally like textbook what you had just said and it was like he he burrowed himself up underneath this little rock ledge, like a little cave. And big mm-hmm. old jelly bean bed right there. I mean, right on the right on the pinch. Yeah. And I looked at it, and I'm like, this dude is so set up. I mean, he can see to the left of him. He can see to the right of him. There's no way you're going to come up over top and be able to see him. Even if you were, even if right. you did scout that ridge, you would never see him. And he would smell you by that time anyway. Yep. So he's going to be out of there. It's just like, man, they, you know... it hats off to him and like i think that's so solid and more people need to think about those kind of things and when you actually start seeing those beds you start to understand like okay and the more and more that you do that the more and more the puzzle becomes you know a picture and i think uh you know i think i wanted to just pick more so so basically you're saying topographics play more in your uh, you know, book of your arsenal than maybe seeing like a clump of uh, of pines next to an oak, a big oak patch, or do you just not really care about yeah. that much, or is it just time related in the year? Yeah, I think that I think that's in the semantics. Um, what I think what I'm trying to say more is you're going to find that hemlock, you're going to find that white pine that thermal cover uh, and it's going to be based on how close to the water you are. So the closer that water table comes up to the ground in that depression or that, that those contour lines coming off the hill depends on the amount of hemlock or white oak that's going to be in there. So I'm using the topography to tell me what tree species are likely going to be there, knowing that my stand is on my back and I can move to the very next gully coming up that hill that's next spring seep coming up the hill if the first one doesn't pan out to what i like okay. it doesn't mean that the buck of your dreams isn't going to be randomly walking through that one that you're skipping out on but that's that that same buck who's walking through there is also walking to the one that counts right remember i that how bloodism hunt the 10 percent of the area where deer are spending 90 percent of their time you're a blind squirrel is going to find a nut. We all heard those stories of somebody shooting at 160, 170. Oh, I just got out of the truck and walked in the woods 100 yards and just, he came in. Right. That to me, kudos, man. I'd hang that buck on my wall too. I mean, maybe yeah. I had a bad day. I got out late. You know what I mean? Like you still poke the slammer. <laughs> That's great. Right. Uh, I, I hunt more forestry related tree species. I know there's going to be a quality buck using these spring seeps because I truly believe and Hal helped prove to me with his 40 plus years of knowledge on top of my, you know, 25 years of knowledge that these spring seeps and these water tables and they're, they're going to dictate what tree species are there. 
and these tree species and the water table is what dictates these home ranges of deer, the broad scale home range. Like I don't want to say the bucks don't ever get into fights because we all love when they do. But when bucks really get into fights, they're chasing does outside of their area into another buck's area. Right. Or it's that juvenile buck that's trying to take out the champ. Mm-hmm. And they have the same home area. These deer are using scent, but their signposts and their scent hubs are topographic and tree species related. So I can't, I, I can't really say that I only look at topography. I can't say I only look at tree species. Uh, the way a forester would approach that mindset is to look at the topography and have an expectation on what tree species are there and then put your boot in the woods. If you have one chance, one day, don't blow it on the first spring seep that you go to if it's not the one you want. You're looking, I'm looking for hemlock and white oak. Um, some type of food that's easy for the deer. Some water. Um, if that first little depression I come to isn't the one, that point seven five is just getting another mile put on with it on the back, and we're we're going to find the one that it is. So, don't take that one day and rush to the first spring seep you see and say, "Well, this is where we should hunt." Uh, don't be afraid to take that extra forty five minutes, hour, walk a mile to the next one because it's where that buck is spending ninety percent of his time. That's where your nocturnal buck is not nocturnal. Absolutely, man. I, it takes me back to one of the first things that my dad like taught me as a hunter, um, and it always has stuck with me. It's like, deer need three things, water, food, and cover, and that's it. And if you can find right. all three of them in the right place, that's where you're going to find a good deer at. Yeah. And yeah. and he's like, and deer in general, but like, as I started evolving as a, a more of a, a big buck hunter that I'd like, you know, I'd like to be, um, it's just, it you know, it always is the same thing. It's like you know, you talk. To, I talk. Fortunately, I get to talk to a lot of guys um, that are successful, and we all share. That's one of the most common things. Is like, what are you looking for? Especially for big woods, because I mean, I think a lot of us get caught up in you know listening to the juries and like ag hunters and stuff, and you you know you don't get to hear as much about hunting deer in their natural habitat in the woods where they're you know. Un, right. where they're messed not messed with or even if you're hunting where they are consistently being pushed and stuff and it's like they're getting pushed into that secondary cover and, and so forth and you as a hunter being able to go in and identify these areas and knowing that ahead of time it's just going to stack your your odds that much higher right and i think that kind of the, the the grind that i had coming up and I, we, I started off as an ag hunter and I remember being 13, 14 years old and saying, hey dad, why, why can't we just get that little farm at where we can just go out in our back 40 and hunt? And he's just like, because we have plenty of public land around to hunt. Like, you know, learn how to hunt it. Well, the public land was not these forests that I'm describing in the north central part of the state or in northern Maine. These are glorified, not even glorified, just reclaimed strip mines. You know, you just it's almost like a desert of nothing but coal dirt and you have little tufts of trees every now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- these areas, it, it, it's really hard to hunt those, especially with the bow. Uh, when, as Trav unlovingly calls them, the orange army comes out, uh, then the deer are pressured everywhere. The, oh, yeah. Then you're looking for cover. It, you know, 
the deer don't care about food. Deer don't care about water. They care about mountain laurels and diving into them. <laughs> right. And so Pennsylvania hunter could get lucky there. But if you don't know what the deer are eating on these coal banks, you're not going to shoot them. You're just not going to shoot them because there is no oak or there's not a plentiful oak uh, mast every year. You're talking about paper birch and maybe some hemlock. You know, I, I found on these where I killed the majority of my deer are within uh, sight of aspen, especially some rejuvenating aspen. Aspen is uh, lower 48 wide. It's a really good early successional habitat, which means these uh, clear cuts or these old fires, these these farmer fields that are let go. Aspen is going to be one of the first things that move in, and the deer will move in right with the aspen. So will the rabbits and the grouse. It's a great <clears throat> habitat. That's interesting, so, man. I never I knew overlooked that. it for years. Uh, yeah, I yeah. overlooked it for years and didn't know it was right there. That's and pretty cool. once I learned it, I started, I started shooting more deer. Absolutely, so, man. I got one more question written down from Logan, and uh, he asked if you could... If you could break down a successful hunt that you've had because of your knowledge in forestry, um, was there like ever like a aha moment, maybe a little bit like where you're like, oh, dude, like, you know, yeah, this yeah. is it. Like you yeah. knew it was going to happen before it happened, maybe. Yeah. And it, it, it wasn't even my biggest buck. It was. Uh, it doesn't the, have the to be a big deer. buck. I, yeah, uh, I just oh, no, cool. no. The, the, yeah. yeah. This this the story. So you, you rewind the clock a little bit in this podcast. I told you the. The story of my father-in-law uh, taking me up to Maine for the first time in 2012. Well, uh, we unexpectedly lost him in 2013. And I'm sorry, man. We uh, we actually, he was going up to Maine there for almost 25 years and never shot a deer. And uh, him and I ended up doubling up the one year we were up there together. And mine was because I read the forest. Like, through and through, I, I knew what I was seeing. Uh, doing a little bit of research, I knew up there the deer were really big on old man's beard. Uh, some, if it's not frozen, some aquatics, you know, sticking their face in the water and grabbing some stuff. But they also have moose to compete with up there for that stuff. So, learning how to hunt, it was before I really got into tracking. But it was when forestry was just on fire. I was a young forester in my my mid twenties, so I could walk ten miles a day, not even thinking about it. Uh, when I saw these shelves that I'm talking about and these beach shelves where all the, the, the beach whips were and you see these moose trails and you kind of know the deer are going to avoid them. And uh, I kind of put it all together. And on, on Tuesday, I, I, I ran down uh, this beautiful scrape trail and I came up on this just, it was a really nice four-pointer. I wish I had the rack here. It was only a four-pointer, but that thing probably had like a 13, 14 inch spread on it. Like yeah. It was actually a decent one. And up there, it's one inch of antler. And I passed up on it. I'm like, eh, it's just a little guy. So yeah. I did what I would have done in Pennsylvania, and I passed up on it. I went back to dinner, and I said, they said, hey, you see anything? I'm like, yeah, I saw a nice four-pointer, and everybody yelled, why didn't you shoot the thing? This isn't Pennsylvania. You don't, yeah, yeah. Right, so I right. said, all right, well, uh, the, the deer up here, for my understanding, are on a little bit different rotation. On In Pennsylvania, they'll check their scrape lines two, three times a day. Up here, it's once every two or three days. So I knew where the scrape line was. I knew the topography and where and the, the food and cover in the area from hunting it all week. And uh, on Friday, I put them down. And it, it was the most successful story because it was doubling up with my father-in-law. And we're never going to get to tell that story ever again any other way. 
Yeah. Uh, so oh, that's awesome. That, that's, now people get to hear it. Who want to hear? It, so yeah. And that's one thing that. this us uh, anthracite antler addicts guys really harp on is we might be a bunch of yahoos who just bust on each other and you know you definitely know we're coming through the woods if you hear some profanity. But the, the one thing we are <laughs> is tradi- we we definitely stand behind each other and other hunters. Yeah, we're we'll ruffle some feathers and bust on some people, but. Well, the, the fact of the matter is we're out there for for our reasons because our dads, our friends got us into this and we're, you know, out here spreading it, spreading the love with you, you know, doing our best we possibly can, bringing the community together instead of trying to divide it. So. Absolutely, man. No, and I love that too. And uh, I can't thank you enough. I think that's an awesome place to, uh, to shut this one down. Um, yeah, yeah. Man, it's been a pleasure having you on again. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, hey. you know, go ahead. What, what were you going to say? I, I, I was just going to say, it seems a lot more smooth than the last one. And that was, uh, oh, the definitely. problems were on my side last one. So no, it's all good. We, I, I was, uh, <laughs> telling you earlier, I was like, you know, I feel like it'll probably flow even better. And I think we got into some other stuff that we didn't even get into last time. So everything happens for a reason, man. Um, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, you've been, a a wealth yeah, of knowledge. I hope you guys, uh, if you're still listening and hanging with us, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, where can people, uh, if they want to get in touch with you, man, are you, I know you're not on Instagram, right? Uh, I do have an Instagram. I, I yeah. check it about w- once a week. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not mostly active on socials all that much, but I do, I do look at them from time to time. So just my, just my regular name, Tim Price on Facebook, uh, Instagram. Well, oh, you'll, if you get on my Facebook, you'll eventually get led to Instagram. Uh, I definitely encourage everybody to check out Anthracite Antler Addicts. Uh, Trav is a hell of a guy. knows more about scrapes than anybody I've ever met in my life. I learn from him every day. Uh, you can get a hold of me through them. And, uh, yeah, I love to shoot the shit with absolutely anybody about forestry. And it, it doesn't matter whether you know him or not. Shoot me a line, and we'll get your questions answered up. Absolutely, man. Tim, thank you again. Uh For those of you guys out there, we will catch you next week, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks again for tuning in this week, guys. Really appreciate all you. want to give a huge shout-out to our sponsor, Lone Wolf Custom Gear and Timberwolf Supply Co. If you guys didn't know, they're going to be in Springport, Michigan this weekend for the Mobile Hunter Roadshow. Get your hands on some of the gear, get to meet some of the staff guys and a ton of other great sponsors at the show. Promise you won't be disappointed. As for Timberwolf, me and Logan will be there on Saturday at the Mobile Hunter Expo. And Logan is there today if you're listening. Uh, it's Friday. We uh, would love for you guys to, to you know get your hands on some of the, uh, the products we got and just get, get to meet some of us. And um, we hope that we can see you there. I want to close today's segment out with a quote from Bob Ross. It's actually kind of a cool quote. I, I just heard it this week and I really liked it. Uh, Bob says, talent is a pursued interest. Anything that you're willing to practice, you can do. Like I said, hopefully uh, hopefully you guys can take something away from that one. I really like that quote. Uh, like we do every week, try to find something relevant. Um, with that being said, guys, I uh, hope you can tune in next week. we got a great guest lined up. I uh, think you all really enjoy it, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you all. Take care.